everyone. It's so good to be with you today. Whenever you're watching this, I'm really excited for Sunday morning because I'm going to be able to jump on with you live and have a little bit more discussion about what I'm going to spend the next 20 or so minutes talking about, a little Q&A, and just some time to get to know you all a little bit more. So as you may have guessed and as you may have seen, my name is Maria French, and I'm just so honored and so thrilled to be a part of this series, Women and Revolution and Religion. I think all of those things are super important, and so just so thrilled and so honored to be a part of the amazing lineup that you have going for this series. Ryan, your pastor, is a really good friend of mine and an esteemed colleague, and really happy to be doing this for him and Mission Hills, and just to continue to stay in dialogue and relationship and discussion about some of these super important things about Christianity and our faith and the future of it all. Before I jump into what Ryan's asked me to talk a little bit about with you today, I want to just let you know a little bit about what I do and the place from which I speak. So I am director of an organization called H&Co. You can find us at hncogroup.com, and we're all about the future of faith. We're all about what does Christianity look like in the 21st century as church and interest and affluence of Christianity and denominations and church structures and all sorts of things continue to be on the decline. What does it look like to reimagine and reconfigure our faith in ways that are innovative and transformative and really matters for the context and the worlds in which we find ourselves at the moment? So if you want to learn a little bit more about how we do that, you can head to the website, our Instagram. Um, I'm sure all that stuff will be linked somewhere below this video or something like that. But for now, I want to jump into what Ryan's asked me to talk with you a little bit about today, and that is radical theology. Now, I know Ryan, and I'm sure he has spent his weeks and months and years uh, as pastor of Mission Hills talking uh, through some radical theology concepts and talking a little bit about the frameworks and the paradigms and possibly radical theology as being a way forward for Christianity and where we're at at the moment. You know, um, as a theologian myself, um, as a lecturer, and as someone who uh, discusses theology and innovative theology for a living, I can give you all the essentials. I can give you the black and white of all of this stuff. Um, and I will do some of that. But I really want you to know a little bit about the place from which I come from and my own story and what has led me to find myself here in the radical theology camp and uh, what we call post-theism. So just a little quick background on me. I'm actually in New York at the moment. I'm in my mother's house. I just spent the last five months in the UK with a stopover in New York for a little while, long enough to quarantine and see some family. And then I'm on my way back to California before I head over the pond again in the fall. Um, but I grew up in an Italian-American community in New York. And we were all Catholic, and if you weren't Catholic, it was like the worst thing in the world. And um, I guess you'd have to understand that culture to sort of understand that mindset. But when I was about 12 or 13, my parents got a divorce, and my mom moved us to the big evangelical charismatic church on Long Island. And of course, we all had this come-to-Jesus moment and this salvation experience. And of course, I spent my youth, like most evangelical youths, um, you know, in youth group on Wednesday nights, going on missions trips. 
trips, evangelizing my public school, um, wearing my purity ring, you know, all sorts of things like that that you might expect from someone that age who is evangelical, charismatic, and fundamental. Um, as I moved into adulthood, I went to a university that was Assembly of God, so very charismatic, very Pentecostal. After that, I moved through seminary and I started to question a lot of things and started to deconstruct some stuff. You've probably heard that term deconstruction and a lot of radical theology is actually about deconstruction. Um, I started to lose the Pentecostal charismatic piece of my faith and lift up the evangelical piece, but it was more of a progressive evangelicalism uh, rather than just fundamental evangelicalism. And eventually I moved through that and I found myself post-evangelical. And so that's kind of a fast forward into my late 20s, early 30s. I'm 37 at the moment, so just to put this all on like a big timeline for you. And I find myself very much um, post-God, post-Christian, post-church, post-faith. And it's not because I'm atheist. I'm actually the opposite of it. Um, to be post means that you're moving yourself off of that sliding scale between theism and atheism. The ah in atheism meaning being outside of God, being over it, being anti it, being opposed it. And actually, atheism is nothing more than Christian atheism because any atheistic viewpoint is only a reaction to Christian theism, right? And eventually with theism on one side and atheism on the other, you know, they don't even actually stand alone anymore. They just become defined by their reactions to the other. And so being post some of this stuff is about transcending that spectrum and transcending that continuum and asking different questions of our faith entirely. Questions that sound a little bit like, what does it look like after we've moved on from divine caregiver structures? What does it look like to be post big God in the sky? What does it look like to engage Christianity in ways that are theologically meaningful and that acknowledge those theological realities that we all are still behind as we read in the scriptures and the New Testament imperatives? What does it look like to engage those in new ways that have nothing to do with you know, um, signing our name on the dotted line of ideology and doctrine that have very little to do with mechanisms of certainty and absolutism and I believe this, but I don't believe that. Um, what does it look like to innovate upon those ideas and those ideologies and those theologies to make sure that they're embedded in the world here and now because that's where Christianity has to happen and that's where theology has to happen. And so radical theology um, is certainly is a spectrum, like all theological thought. So you have, you know, people at one end of it and people at the other end of it and all sorts of things in between. But the thing about radical theology that a lot of other Christian theologies simply miss, it doesn't matter how conservative you are as a Christian or how progressive or liberal you are as a Christian, you're still buying and trading in currencies of certainty. You're still buying and trading in currencies of supernaturalism and the metaphysical and mythology. Um, and so radical theology asks the question of what does it look like to engage Christianity um, in a demythologized way, in a way where certainty isn't the goal, um, in, in ways where we're not always running after the promise of being whole and the promise of sort of being complete and happy. What does it look like to sit in the lack of life with no promise that we will escape that lack? 
What does it look like to live amid the uncertainty and the complexities of life and be okay with that? What does it look like to let God out of God's cage? What does it look like to um, talk about God in ways that are uncontainable as opposed to contained? What does it look like to talk about God in ways that are impossible as opposed to possible and unknowable as opposed to knowable? So you see where I'm going with this a little bit. John Caputo, who is a well-known deconstructionist and radical theologian, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, maybe you haven't, um, super prolific writer, author, thinker, theologian, uh, so many good books out there by him. He's, he publishes multiple books a year, coming out with a new one in October, a new one after that. Um, but he talks about God and he kind of takes his cues from Jacques Derrida in terms of the event of God as opposed to God being a being and an object that is fixed and centered and outside of ourselves and empirical and objective. But he talks about this idea of the event and the experience of God. And he defines the event as the inexhaustible nature of the impossible, which means every time we come to the table, every time we have an experience with what we've named as God, it is free and liberated to be different and to be new, maybe in common with other people's experiences, but also maybe not. Because when we contain it and when we name it and when we make it absolutely knowable, um, we kill it. And Caputo actually talks about religion in terms of that religion will often make concrete what really can only be fluid. And when we do that, when we make concrete what can only be fluid, it's actually um, a denial of the absolute as opposed to an affirmation of the absolute. Um, it's really interesting. He talks about... Um, he's got a couple books out, one called, well, like I said before, he's got a million books out, but two, the two books I'm thinking that I'm going to reference for you right now, The Weakness of God and The Folly of God. And he takes his cues from the Apostle Paul in First, First Corinthians, First Corinthians, sorry, it's when I get passionate, I talk really fast and then I start slurring my words. Um, in First Corinthians chapter one, where Paul talks about the folly of God and the weakness of God and how the folly of God is actually wiser than any human and the weakness of God is actually stronger than any human. And he takes Paul really seriously when he starts talking about that stuff because there he says therein sort of lies where we may be able to start to uncover what we think we have named and what we have known to be God. It's when we take God from high and move God to weak. It's when we take God from being, you know, abundance and we think of God as absence. Uh, it's when we talk about, you know, when we replace certainty for uncertainty. And instead of going higher, Caputo says, we go deeper, uh, we go outward. And that kind of rhetoric, changing that language, really puts a new spin on what we think we've come to know as God and how we have engaged God and, and all the various iterations and constructs and paradigms uh, that have been attributed to God through the years and through the ages. Um, it's really interesting. So I said a little while ago, I talked about being post as opposed to the awe in atheism. And, you know, being post basically essentially means that we've moved through our beliefs. We've moved through our traditions and our stories and our narratives, and somehow we're still here. Somehow we are still here and we've lived to tell. And, you know, there's a whole group and a whole demographic of people out there that I um, refer to as posties. 
So the post-Christian, the post-evangelical, the post-charismatic, the, the post-God, the post-church, post-faith, post-religion, whatever you want to say. But anybody who is post-something, um, and hopefully with any luck, we're all post-something throughout our lives. Obviously, we always want to keep evolving and moving and growing. But the idea of being post means that we're still searching. We're still figuring out what it means to engage our faith in new ways that are alive and dynamic and meaningful and that hold some sense of relevancy for our lives, hold some semblance of, of reason and, and sense. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't ask us to compromise our sense of intellect and even our postmodern sensibilities. Um, so as I said, Radical theology is really a spectrum, and I think I would put John Caputo on one end of the spectrum. Um, he still continues to use some biblical language, even though he really deconstructs it. Um, you know, he talks about, he still wants to use things like kingdom of God, but he wants to redefine it, and he wants to talk about kingdom uh, without a kingdom. You know, kingdom in which... Um, the, 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 it's ruled by the unruly, you know, by, by the weak and, and by the foolish. Um, and so he, in that sense, he wants to reauthor some Christian language. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have radical theologians like Jeffrey Robbins, for instance. And he says, actually, if Christianity has a future, we need to come up with some new language. So he'll talk about things like, um, messianic and say that word needs to be replaced by something like metamorphosis. It's, it's a better analogy. It's a better metaphor for the times in which we find ourselves and, and how we can understand. He, he wants to replace things like resurrection with words like insurrection. Um, because you cannot, if you want to change people's theologies, he says you have to change the metaphors and you have to change the language and how you talk about this kind of stuff and, and you know, the, the word pictures and the images that you build for people in their minds. But not only that, he says some of our language is just super weighted down with way too much baggage to be saved. And so maybe it's time to sacrifice some of that language and come up with new language. Now, granted, I get that this stuff is really difficult for people. Um, and nobody's pressuring anybody to give up this or give up that. What this conversation is about is saying, hey, things that were maybe outside of the bounds of your imagination, push those bounds, you know, push what, push the margins of where you thought that you could go. Um, because if God exists, and again, radical theology is not about talking about the existence of any empirical being. Um, and actually what radical theology does, and I think I was trying to say this earlier and I, I went off on a different tangent, but when I was talking about how, um, you know, on, on a spectrum of Christianity, you have conservatives and, and liberals, and even your most liberal progressive Christian is still buying and trading in currencies of certainty. What I also wanted to say was they are still buying and trading in currencies of supernaturalism. Maybe I said that. I can't remember now, but that's where radical theology really departs from traditional Christian thinking is that it's not about that big God in the sky anymore. It's not about that God that kind of lives in your heart and looks after us, this divine caregiver and this empirical reality outside of ourselves. Um, radical theologians like Richard Carney, for instance, would say, well, what we're talking about essentially is the stranger and the guest and the other. And it's about how we are going to greet that guest and stranger or other. Are we going to greet it with hostility? 
Are we going to greet it with hospitality? And he says, can we name the stranger God, quote unquote, big G God? Sure, we can. Um, but again, if you want to change people's theologies, you have to change the metaphor. Because when we talk about big G God, that denotes something. And we have to be careful what that denotes. Um, speaking of what it denotes, for those of you who uh, don't know the sort of beginnings of radical theology, uh, started in the 60s, although radical theologians like myself will make a really, <laughs> oh, I won't say really good argument. I'll let you be the judge of that, even though I'm not going to be talking about it today. But it can be argued that we can see sort of the beginnings of this kind of thought in the Old Testament, um, secularism being present in the Old Testament, you know, uh, this kind of thinking of the liberation of God sort of being present in, in Luther and the Reformation. Um, and even uh, we can find the, some roots of radical theology in liberation theology and black theology, um, marginal theology, certainly. But um, for all intents and purposes, the beginning of radical theology is really attributed to the 1960s in the death of God movement. And this was an important time for theology. This was an important time for Christianity in America. In 1966, you have this incredible, stunning uh, Time magazine cover that debuted. And in black and red on its front cover all across America, the question, um, is God dead? And it outraged everybody. I mean, the theologians that were um, interviewed for the article, which was uh, the main one being Thomas Altizer, by the way, who just recently died in the last year or so. He was, you know, the main death of God theologian. Um, just absolute outrage that America had gotten to a point where they could ask, is God dead? Uh, and of course, most Americans don't have, you know, a theological or a philosophical background, no shame or blame there. Of course, everyone's sort of not well read in Nietzsche or, you know, what have you. But essentially, it was a throwback to the late, um, late 1800s, Friedrich Nietzsche's parable of the madman, where he tells the story of this crazy guy running into the town square. And he wasn't actually crazy. Everyone thought he was crazy, but he wasn't. He was probably the most sanest one there. And he's yelling about, at how God has been killed and that the people there had killed him. They've essentially killed him by naming God, by containing God, by thinking that they know God, by attributing all sorts of power and glory and nobility and um, all sorts of authority to God, making God in our own image, turning God into an idol, and in doing so, we have killed anything that might have been divine, anything that might have been magical and sacred and wonderful, anything that actually deserved to potentially be named God, we had failed that and we had killed that. And so it wasn't so much an indictment um, on God necessarily, but it was an indictment on how we have made God in our own image and in doing so just really killed the whole thing. And out of that, you know, spawned a lot of theological thoughts, certainly the radical theology we see of today. But it's interesting because Jeffrey Robbins in his work will say specifically, a half a century after the death of God, we are still not done with the word God yet. And I think that is what radical theology and post-theistic thought, post-God thought, again, the post-Big G God, post the God that Nietzsche was talking about, um, post that God, we're still not done with the search for 
maybe perhaps little G God yet, or perhaps as Carney would say, the stranger, the other, the guest. So I find a lot of hope in, in radical theology. I find that it gives us a lot of freedom and, um, but also keeping us really grounded and balanced in what we're not after, which is certainty and safety and predictability and even perhaps tradition. Um, back to John Caputo, I just made a few notes here that I want to make sure I tell you before I sign off and we jump into a conversation on Sunday morning. Um, some of the ways he also refers to God, uh, he will say, the unconditional versus the conditional, the impossible versus the possible. And when he talks about this idea of the conditional, these conditions that we've put on God, what God needs to look like, right, for us, he calls that comfort-giving, supreme being, divine caregiver. He calls it a ready-with-an-answer religion. And he says that's simply not how the event and the experience and the conditional work. Um... He, Caputo is very interesting. He, he talks about prayer and he says, if there's any prayer that we want to pray ever, may it sound like this. Come to the coming of what we cannot see coming. Because no ability lies in our imagination and not who we actually attribute our imagination to. And it's interesting when I read that prayer, that he, if he says, again, he says, if I have a prayer, it's this. He prays, come to that which we cannot see coming. To the coming, that which we cannot see coming. Because Jeffrey Robbins has a similar prayer. And it's, it goes like this. He says, um, I wrote it down. It's on the floor. Let me get it. <laughs> I thought I had it in my head. And I kind of do, but I would have messed it up. He says this. If you are searching after truth, the truth will find you, even if there is no truth. And Mark C. Taylor, one of my favorite theologians and philosophers, also a prolific writer, um, he says that even though the cause is lost, and it may be lost, um, that the cause is still just. And so we still search after it, and we still quest and we still journey, and we still move forward the best we know how, embodying these values, embodying everything that got us on board with Christianity in the first place. Speaking of Mark Taylor, um, he has one of my favorite books by him called After God. I really highly recommend it. It's really intense, and it's a thick book. And if you can get through the introduction and even the first chapter or two, it would be enough to change your life. But he opens up the introduction with these words, I no longer believe in circles as I once did. And I thought that was so profound because a lot of my graduate work, I have a couple master's degrees from seminary and I'm finishing up my doctor of ministry at the moment. And, um, you know, I've been around the block with theology and philosophy and all of those things. But um, some of my work is really heavily centered in hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpretation. And so as I was exploring hermeneutics many years ago, and of course still continue to do, I came across this phrase, the hermeneutical spiral. And I loved it because for years, 
hermeneutics was talked about as a circle. We have this process to find meaning and we go around and around on it and it's a fixed process and we'll get the same result and it's tested and scientific and it works. And this idea of a circle is really a product of modernity. You know, um, this, this sense of we can only know truth if it can be proven and seen and we have empirical data on it and it goes through a scientific method and so on and so forth. This idea of a spiral means that we hop that circle, we jump off of that circle, and knowledge and the way we attain knowledge becomes a spiral into the future, that every time we go around, we're a little bit different, we know a little bit more, and we build on top of what we know, and we build on top of our experiences again and again. And so I just love this idea of no longer believing in circles, no longer signing on to circles. It reminds me, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the movie Mary Poppins with Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. It's one of my favorite movies. And at one point, her and Dick Van Dyke and the children jump into a sketch that he has drawn on the sidewalk. He was a chimney sweep and, and would draw chalk illustrations on the sidewalk. And they jump into this sketch and they imagine themselves having this wonderful time. And they're on a carousel and the carousel's going around and around. But because they're like in this alternate universe, anything can happen. And the carousel horses jump off the carousel and they just start going on this wild ride and this wild adventure. And that's what I think when I think about Christianity. I think of adventure. I think of the unknown. I think of questing. I think of searching. I think of freedom to not know. It's okay to not know. I think so much of Christianity makes us feel guilty for not knowing. You know, study this, study that, make sure you find God, make sure you seek God, make sure you know God, make sure you, you know, are certain about truth. And I'm here to let you off the hook for that. I think Ryan's here to let you off the hook for that. I think that our human experience and our human conditions are just simply way too complex uh, for um, being able to, to know everything. And I don't think anybody or anything inside of us or outside of us expects that of us. And so in that sense, I think, well, I think a lot of things, but I think that if Christianity is about anything, it's about sitting in the uncertainties of life and the complexities of what it means to live this life. And, you know, Christianity for so long, traditional Christianity has given sort of this very singular solution to things. Uh, here's the answer right here in one sentence. But the truth is there, there is no singular solution because there isn't one singular reality and there isn't one singular experience. So there can't possibly be one singular answer. Um... So in saying that, I want to close by saying a word about the future. Both personally and professionally, I talk about the future of faith quite often. And it's not because it's easy, and it's not because I have it figured out. It's because if I know anything, it's that the future is completely unknowable, and that the future is completely uncertain, and we have no idea what to expect. And if anything, the promise of the future has failed us. The promises of social constructs and economies and what we thought the world might hold for us has been blown to shreds. And it's been blown to shreds for some time. I think people are really starting to notice it now in the middle of the pandemic, 
but it's happened uh, quite a bit before this. But in saying that, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are the values and what's the ethos in which we will approach the future with? And at H&Co, we have four things that we say we like to approach an unknown future with, and that's curiosity, plasticity, tenacity, and resistance. And I'm going to close on this word plasticity. We talk about the plasticity of God as opposed to something like elasticity. And again, I'm borrowing from a favorite radical theologian, Jeffrey Robbins, um, and he's borrowing plasticity from the neuroscience field. Uh, it's been over the last 20 years talking about and new findings, new data about the plasticity of the brain where forever scientists and doctors, the academy, the medical field thought that the brain was set and cemented just past your formative years, just right before adolescence. If you had any trauma, if you had anything needed to be fixed, it couldn't um, because the brain was sort of this fixed organism and the best you could do would be go to therapy, but that, you know, to deal with whatever trauma you had, but that was about it. And over the last 20 years or so, we're finding so much out about the brain that is putting all that we thought we knew and it's standing it on its head. And we're actually finding that there's a, there's a plasticity to the brain. And it means that we can actually build new stories and new realities and we can change the makeup. We can change the physiological, biological makeup of our brains. And this is vital in healing trauma and healing our broken stories. And so Jeffrey Robbins takes this kind of thought and applies it to theology. And he says, God is actually plastic. God can be renamed and changed. And the whole thing about plasticity is that your brain is changed because of the social stimuli around it. It's social environment actually enacts upon it. It's not so much what happens within ourselves, but it's what happens to us, the context that we find ourselves in, the social locations we find ourselves in, the communities we find ourselves in, the relationships we're engaging. That's what changes us. We are changed and made better and made new and recreated because of the world we find ourselves embedded in. And God is no different than that. And let's not confuse plasticity with elasticity. Elasticity is about pulling something apart and it snaps back to its shape. Plasticity is about changing its shape forever. Again, based on environment and the things that enact upon it. Essentially, radical theology is about dismantling what we think we know, while also keeping our stories and our journeys and our narratives a valued part of our experience and what makes us who we are today. So there's so much more I could say about all of this, but I'm going to end there. I hope that this was helpful for you. I am going to send Ryan a list of resources, some of the people I spoke about today, but certainly beyond because there's so much we could all read on this. And I look forward to speaking with you soon.